Thanks for joining the Heights Church podcast today. We hope that you enjoy the message. If you're in the Sydney area, be sure to join us at the Heights Church at Golston Road, Hornsby Heights, Sydney, Australia. So today's Bible reading is going to come from 1 Kings 19, 3 to 13. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life when he came to Bathsheba in Judah. He left his servant there and while himself went went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom brush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than an ancestor. He then lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then laid down again. The angels of the Lord came back a second time. And touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been there. Zeus, for the Lord God Almighty, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not, was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the, fi- after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I wonder, uh, as we've just heard from this story about Elijah's breakdown, I wonder if you in your life have ever had a breakdown, whether you've ever uh, had a meltdown, whether you've ever felt run down, beat down, or if you've ever felt let down. I suspect that yes, at one point in your life, uh, perhaps even the season of life that you're in at the moment, that you have felt one or more of those emotions, one of those experience of feeling in some way down, in some way at the end of your rope, uh, in some way feeling like, you know what, I'm over it, I'm done, I'm finished, I cannot go on. Today I want to ask uh, us this morning uh, the question, uh, when we find ourselves down, when we find ourselves in that moment of breakdown or meltdown or letdown, how does God respond to us? What is it that God would want to say to us when we find ourselves in those inevitable moments of feeling down? 
And so we're looking this morning at this story of Elijah as he has his breakdown. And as he has his breakdown, God comes to him. And I think today that as we examine uh, the way that God came to Elijah, as we consider the way that God handled and dealt with Elijah in 1 Kings 19, as he's having his almighty breakdown, that we might potentially have some clues as to how God might want to respond to us, how God might want to communicate to us, how God might want to deal with us when we find ourselves down. I think as we consider Elijah's story, we might be able to look at it through the lens of the scenarios and the situations when we find ourselves uh, ready to give up. Uh, Let me just pray again quickly. Uh, God, I pray this morning as we consider this story that you would speak uh, to us individually, for all the people that are here this morning and and, and those that are watching online, whatever might be going on uh, in our lives, God, that this message, that this uh, story of Elijah might speak into uh, our situation. And I pray that it would be something that would encourage us, that would lift us up, that would build us up. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So yes, we are in the book of 1 Kings today. You might perhaps want to follow along as I go through the story in 1 Kings chapter 19. And in the Old Testament, we have these two books, uh, 1 and 2 Kings. And the clue as to what these books are about uh, are right there in the heading, right there in the title. These books are about the kings of Israel and Judah. They tell the story about uh, how after David and Solomon... How did the kings go? Uh, And ultimately, the story is sort of viewed as sort of like, okay, God came to David and made him a promise that his descendants uh, would be, one day he would have a descendant that whose throne would be established forever, uh, who would execute justice. Uh, and, And so as David passed and it went on to the next generation, it was sort of go, okay, King David was made a promise, let's keep an eye on his descendants to see if any of these descendants live up to the billing of God's promise here. And so uh, we read straight away that Solomon got off to a good start, but then famously the whole thing came crashing down pretty quickly. Crashing down so badly that in one generation, like at the end of Solomon's reign, the kingdom was split into two, okay? So not off to a great start. In one and two kings, we we see the story of the kings, not of one kingdom, but of two kingdoms. Israel, the the northern 10 tribes broke away to become Israel. And then Judah in the south um, with Jerusalem and, and each had their own separate king. And in the book of one and two kings, there are actually 40 kings, 20 in each that are discussed and talked about and evaluated as to how they go. And they're evaluated in terms of, okay, how did each king maintain worship of the one true God and how did each king execute justice faithfully? How did they go up preserving worship and maintaining justice? And well, out of the 40 kings that are talked about from the northern and the southern kingdom, out of the 40 kings, only eight, and this is generous, only eight are spoken about in any sort of positive light. Okay, so the rest of them, 32 out of 40, were considered as some sort of failure. And so 1 and 2 Kings really is a story of failure. It's a story of 
of it just getting worse and worse and worse, and then maybe a little bit better and then worse again, and then maybe a little bit better and then ultimately very, very bad. Bad to the point, ending the story it does with uh, both the northern and the southern kingdoms ceasing to be, being exiled and this promise to David left hanging. Okay, what's going to happen next? Okay, spoiler alert, New, New Testament, Jesus is that descendant. But today we're talking about the story of these initial kings. Okay, and because the kings and their kingdoms were so drastically drifting away from God, 32 times out of 40, God began to send to them uh, these people who we know as the prophets. Prophets, not because they could see into the future or anything like that, but prophets were essentially people who spoke God's truth. They spoke God's truth and they called the kings and the kingdoms, they called them, come back into line. Come back to live the way that God called us to live. Come back and be the king in the kingdom that, that would be in line with the covenant promise that God has made to us. The prophets came. And a lot of these prophets uh, wrote a lot of our Old Testament. You go to that back section of the Old Testament, there's all these names ending in I. Okay, a lot of these guys were prophets and they, and they came because they were the ones who called Israel, hey, let's snap out of it and get back to worshipping God and executing justice like we're supposed to do. And so in the book of 1 and 2 Kings, yes, it's about the kings, but there are some stories about a couple of prophets, particularly the, the main characters in these books, Elijah and then later on Elisha. And Elijah was a big one, especially for the Jewish people. They sort of had two big figures that they put up on like the highest of pedestal. Moses, of course, but the other one that was often put next to him was Elijah. It's significant that when Jesus returns and he goes up on the mountain uh, with the transfiguration, who were the two people that appeared to Jesus? Moses and Elijah. And so Elijah, I just say that to say Elijah was a big deal. And we get his story uh, in 1 Kings chapter 16 onwards. And Elijah was commissioned by God. His ministry, his role was to reach out particularly to the king of the time, King Ahab. And in terms of jobs that God could give you, this was like not a good job. King Ahab, as the cartoon that we watched just now, uh, was was pretty bad. He was described actually out of all those 32 bad kings, he was the worst one. It says in 1 Kings chapter 16, uh, verses 29 onwards, and those words are going to be behind me now. It says, in the third, third, 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he began to serve Baal and worship him, Baal being a different god. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to worship, did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Elijah's ministry, his job in life was to call Ahab back to faithful worship. And to summarise, he didn't often have much luck in convincing Ahab of anything. Instead of praising Elijah's faithful ministry to him and to his people, 
Ahab instead called uh, Elijah the troubler of Israel, this troublemaker of Israel. And there's a story uh, that happens right before the reading that Nat read that where Elijah famously essentially embarrasses the, the priests of this Baal, this different religion, this different uh, God. He embarrasses them in a grand display, uh, challenges them essentially to a miracle off and, and Elijah wins, he embarrasses them, he decimates them and, and this is like a victorious moment for Elijah Except afterwards, Ahab's wife, Jezebel, who quite liked Baal and quite liked Baal's priests, well, Jezebel at this point made it publicly known that she wanted Elijah dead. That was it. And, and if she wanted Elijah dead, well, she was probably uh, pulling the strings in terms of what Ahab was also going to do. So right after Elijah's biggest victory, like his most successful moment, public like, yes, look at this great thing I've done. He is again rejected and he becomes afraid and despondent. Uh, And it says there in in, uh, chapter 19 where our story today is in verse 3, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a, a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. Take my life, not in like a way that we might sing in worship. Take my life as in, I'm done. I am finished, God. I am over it. I have nothing left to give. If, if this is how I am treated after my most successful moment, right when I thought I was turning a corner, right when I thought something good was about to happen, okay, I'm, I'm finished, I'm drained, I'm exhausted. He was so sick of his job, he was so sick of Ahab, so sick of even just the people of Israel, he didn't want to give anything more and he didn't want to give anything more to them. To him they were ungrateful and to him also they were unworthy. And he was all alone and he was done. Let me die. He was beat down, he was run down, and he was having an almighty breakdown. So some quick features of Elijah's meltdown uh, that you might perhaps relate to. Okay, Some things going on psychologically for Elijah in this moment. Number one, fear. He was afraid. He was afraid of what would happen to him, and so he hides, he withdraws. And that's the second feature, withdrawal. He isolates himself Uh, He sought essentially to just avoid people and he got away from them. And third of all, he had a lack of energy, physically, emotionally exhausted. Despite his great success, he wanted it all to end. Elijah was also selective in his memory. We do this as well. We're selective in our memory. We see in this story that Elijah concentrates on all the things that have gone wrong. How badly do we do that? as well when we're in a bad moment. We don't, we don't really highlight the good things about us or our story in those moments. No, we focus on the bad. That's exactly what Elijah does here. It says, God, you know, the people have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, he says. And now they're trying to kill me too, which was sort of true. But it wasn't the whole story, but that's the bit that he was focusing on. 
He wasn't in this moment, you know, remembering God's faithfulness to him. He wasn't remembering, uh, you know, God's commissioning to him. He wasn't remembering the good things that he had done, the good things that God had done for him. He hadn't, it wasn't remembering the way that God fed him, you know, with ravens, uh, that it, uh, manufacturing oil from nothing for a widow that couldn't pay her debts. Uh, he wasn't remembering the miracle where he raised uh, a literal person from the dead. He wasn't remembering uh, the way that he ended a three-year drought. No, he was selectively focusing on yet, in his mind, yet another bad thing happening. And so, okay, as he's having his breakdown, God comes and responds to him. I've broken down God's response to him in six quick key points, which I think can this morning provoke us to consider how God responds to us when we find ourselves down. We find ourselves down. Number one, this is how God responds to Elijah. Number one, God gives Elijah food and rest. Now, there's never going to be a time in our life when we are at peak comfort without any sort of stress or negative struggle in our life. Sorry to, to let you know, if you didn't know that already, there's never going to be a time where you're like, I've got nothing stressing me out, nothing to be anxious about, nothing making me even slightly uncomfortable. And in fact, really, if we do find ourselves close to that, being comfortable brings with it its own set of problems and temptations. However, Sometimes in our life, we can focus so much on God giving us some sort of spectacular deliverance when perhaps what God really is trying to direct us towards is just taking care of our basic physical needs. Feeling strained, feeling stressed, feeling exhausted. These things are never an excuse for us to drift into sin. But the reality is... When we're physically and emotionally drained, there is more chance that we are going to bend on our convictions and there's more chance that we're going to drift away from God spiritually. It's when we're exhausted that we're more likely to give up and find quick and easy relief away from God and the life that He has called us to live. And sure, sometimes we need to pray more. Sure, sometimes we need to get into our Bible more. Sure, sometimes we need to like make some decisions and be somewhat better. But sometimes in our life, when we find ourselves down, what we really need is some carbohydrates and some sleep. It's a tweet uh, that uh, I read a few years ago. It's going to be on the screen. Okay, this is from uh, a woman named Joy Clarkson. She is a theologian. And she tweeted out, this is your gentle reminder that one time in the Bible, Elijah was like, God, I'm so mad, I want to die. So God said, here's some food, why don't you have a nap? So Elijah slept, ate, and decided things weren't so bad. Never underestimate the spiritual power of a nap and a snack. You see, God wanted to do some serious work in Elijah, but he knew that exhausted Elijah was in no state to listen. So he gave him some rest and he gave him some bread. And what I love in the story is he gives him some good bread. Previously in Elijah's story, we read about God providing bread for Elijah. But the bread that is provided to Elijah previously to this is called day-old bread. And it's brought to him by ravens. It's, it's bread, it's provided to by, but it's not the good stuff. 
And there's another story, you know, there's a widow that has bread for him. But again, this is not like good bread that he's given to by the widow of Zarephath. But now in this story, as you read it, in his greatest moment of defeat, in his greatest moment of disobedience, God feeds Elijah and he feeds him the good stuff. Hot baked bread and clean water served not by a dirty bird, but by the angel of the Lord. He brings him the good stuff. And there are times in our life when we're going to be drained and exhausted. There are going to be times in our life when our mental health is not in a good place. And particularly to our youth, I'm never going to tell our youth who might be struggling with their mental health, just uh, try harder. Just like, have you tried to smile? Have you just tried to just, you know, pray about it and read your Bible more and just get yourself through it? And those are good things to do, sure. But I'm never going to say that because often our struggles when we find ourselves down and it's particularly with mental health, it's not that simple. There's more going on. There's not a quick fix, especially not a, hey, just pray more, just read your Bible more and you'll be right sort of fix. However, when we find ourselves in moments where we're struggling, there are things that we can do to give ourselves little 1% boosts, little things that can give us emotional and physical nourishment. We can walk around the block, 1% boost. We can go and touch grass and get out in the sunlight, 1% boost. We can get a good night's sleep or attempt to get some sort of extra sleep than we might normally do. We can play with a pet. We can talk to a friend. We can do something for someone else. We can drink some water. We can eat some fruit and vegetables. We can have a social media free day. Sometimes we need to listen to God and just go and give yourself these 1% little bits. They're not going to solve your problems. They're not going to even make you better. Sometimes we need to put ourselves in a position just with some little boost to, to enable us to hear what God wants to say to us and work in us. So perhaps this morning uh, when you go home from church, okay, what did I get out of today's sermon? Okay, what I took, I'm going to go home and I'm going to make myself a really nice sandwich and I'm going to take a nap. That's my sort of takeaway from church today, uh, perhaps. The second thing that God does to Elijah is he asks him a question twice. In verse 9 and verse 13, he asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? Just ask him a question. He urges him to reflect. And the, the question both time elicits the response from Elijah to sort of go into his sob story, you know, I've been so good and life's so bad, you know, a story that, you know, we might have tell, told ourselves at different times. But in answering the questions, Elijah is prompted to remind himself that the situation he is in is precisely because he was trying to be faithful to God and that God is faithful to him and that even though he goes through trials, that God's always been good to him. God asks him some questions just to get him to reflect on where he's up to. And I wonder this morning, what question would God ask you? He asked uh, in Genesis chapter 3, asked Adam and Eve, where are you? And here in this story to Elijah, he says, what are you doing here? I wonder as you uh, find yourself thinking about where you're up to in life, that God might be asking you about that. Where are you up to? What's, what's the stage of life that you're in? What's brought you to this point? I wonder if God today is encouraging you to reflect on your life and where it is that you're up to in journey, just to enable you to get a clear head 
on what is actually going on in your life. To just pause and go, okay, who, who am I? What am I up to? You know, what's brought me to this point? And perhaps even what is next? He urged him to reflect. He asked him a question. The third thing that God did was that he showed Elijah how to listen to a whisper. And this is a good one. He showed Elijah how to listen to a whisper. And in this story, okay, God comes and he causes a great wind to pass by the cave. There's at one point rocks and landslides. There's an earthquake. There's a big fire. Okay, And he's trying to listen to God in these big, spectacular things. And he can't hear God. God says, I'm going to speak to you. But then finally, there's just a little whisper. And that's where he hears God's voice. God wasn't in the big wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the big fire. No, God comes to Elijah in the form of a a soft, little, barely able to hear it whisper. This little object lesson for Elijah, I think, is a good object lesson for us as well. I think that Elijah was supposed to learn a very simple but important lesson that God is not only to be found in big mountaintop experiences. And you've got to remember, Elijah just had one, this big moment on the mountain, uh, defeating the, the, prof, the priests of Baal, big spectacular. There was fire there as well, and God was in that. And perhaps Elijah had come to expect that a spectacular moment meant that all he was going to get from that point on was spectacular moment, spectacular moment, spectacular experience of God, big mountaintop experience with God, that God would come and just be so loud to him, so uh, brazen, so uh, magnificent in all of his glory every single time. And it was perhaps this expectation that sort of set Elijah up for failure. So when Jezebel says publicly, Elijah's done, I'm going to kill him, this was really discouraging to him because he thought it was about to go the other way. That big experience was going to breed more and more big experiences. And God does occasionally speak to us dramatically. He does occasionally speak to us in big moments. I I do believe that and and I have experienced that in my life as well. But I also think more often than not, God speaks to us in a tiny little barely able to hear it whisper. As Nat and I talked about, we're going to kick, we're taking our youth away next weekend. And listen, that is a mountaintop experience type situation. And I want more than anything for our youth to hear God in a big, spectacular way on a big weekend like that. I want more than anything for that to happen. But as their youth minister, I desperately also want them to learn to hear God in the quiet little whisper of the day to day and the week to week. And I also don't want to set them up for failure. You can go away on a big weekend and God's speaking to you so clearly and it's just amazing, the worship's so good, you know, I can't get enough of this. And then what happens? They, they go back home and they go to school and they get back into the day to day and it's sort of let down. It's sort of, I can't hear God anymore. And, 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 it's such a mistake that we can teach our young people to say, well, you've heard from God, now you've got to wait till next April, okay? Maybe next September at state youth camp if you're lucky. Two experiences with God, you get to hear from him twice 
a year. Now, that's, that's an, I would love more than anything for our youth, and, it would, and I suppose what I'm saying to you this morning as well in your life, where we're all at this morning, that God perhaps is calling you to again hear Him in the quiet, unspectacular whisper again. The fourth thing that God did for Elijah was he told him to retrace his steps. He told him to go back where he came from, which, uh, you know, that's something you probably shouldn't say aloud. It might be misconstrued that you're saying it to someone in sort of a, a racist, negative way. God's not saying that to Elijah, you know, go back to where you came from. No, he's saying, retrace your steps, Elijah. And not only that, God gives Elijah something to do, a mission, a purpose, a task, something that all of us, I think, need in our lives, a focus as to what God is calling us to do in our lives. Elijah needed to stop looking at only himself and his own difficult circumstances. He also needed to get on with what God wanted him to do. God wanted him to march back into the ministry and the calling that God had placed on his life. Uh, The old Baptist uh, preacher, Charles Spurgeon, I love the way that he describes this part of the story. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says about this, Then the Lord did what perhaps was best of all for Elijah. He gave him some more work to do. He sent him off about his master's business again. And I warrant you that when Elijah went back over that road, it was with a very different step from that which brought him down to Beersheba. He had come along terrified and distressed, but now he goes back with the majesty that belongs to the Tishbite. He is afraid of no Jezebel now. I wonder today what paths God might be prompting you to retrace. What battles God is saying to you, hey, get back in there and keep fighting. What situations God's saying, retrace your steps and get back in there. I am with you. Perhaps your retracing of your steps is the retracing of the steps of the prodigal son, uh, the parable that Jesus tells about a young man that takes his father's inheritance, goes and squanders it uh, on, on wasteful living, finds himself uh, with, with no more money, in the mud, with the pigs, just going, I, I, I just want to go back home and just become one of my dad's servants again. And he retraces his steps back to his father. And when we retrace our steps, as in that story, when we trace it, retrace our steps back to our father in heaven, he always meets us with loving, open arms. Perhaps God's calling you to retrace your steps back into the battle, but maybe he's just calling you to retrace his, your steps back into his loving, open arms. Number five, and we're nearly there. Number five, God showed Elijah that he wasn't alone. See, Elijah was feeling like he was the last man standing. He thought he was the last one. He was the, 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 the only one uh, that was serving God. He felt so rejected that, you know, this amplified his feelings of loneliness to the point where, you know, when you're feeling uh, rejected and alone, often what we can do is isolate ourselves even further. We, we exaggerate our own isolation by becoming even more isolated. We go, we just get, we want all people away from us. And this is what Elijah does. He has a servant with him and he feels so alone. He tells the servant, don't go with me out into the wilderness. Um, You know, 
he wanted to be absolutely and utterly alone or by himself. He, he was isolated, but he then further isolated himself on pur- purpose. And our first instinct in our life so often, isn't it, is to withdraw, to isolate ourselves, to go and recuperate in our cave. And sometimes we need to recuperate in our cave. We need those days at home. We need those days away from people. And that can be a good thing. But sometimes, and I don't know if you've ever felt this, but sometimes when you're in the cave for too long, we can become susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. We can be paranoid. We can, we can really start to exaggerate how bad things are. We can start to exaggerate, you know, perhaps how negatively people think about us. We can become so isolated that we just become more and more isolated. And this is a pattern that isn't good for us. And it's a pattern that wasn't good for Elijah. And Elijah had a misconception that he alone was the last prophet, that he alone was the only one following, faithfully following God, that he was the only devout person in Israel. And so by resigning, by quitting, by going, I'm done, he was also saying, Israel is done. At this point of the story, I love it, God reveals to him, "You're you're not the only one that I've got on the payroll, Elijah. You're not the only one that I'm working with right now. He says, actually, I've got 7,000 other prophets who are doing different ministries in, in, in Israel. You're not alone. You're not the last man standing. You think you're the only one going through stuff? You think you're the only one doing stuff? And this, I think, was supposed to be comforting, but also humbling. So, however, we can get carried away with thinking, uh, with the idea of how much God perhaps needs us. You know, if I don't step up, if I don't do this, if I'm not the one doing it, well, then it's nothing's going to happen. You know, it's not, it's not like, uh, and this is, we need to remember this, it's not like God is up in heaven. You know, when we don't step up and, and, and follow the call of, of what God wants us, uh, us to be doing in our life, it's not like God is up in heaven scratching his, his chin going, Ugh, what do I do now? My, my only person, my only hope isn't, isn't doing anything. We can sometimes think that about it. Elijah did. He thought he was the last one left. God reminds him, no, I'm doing lots of things that you don't even know about. We need to know like Elijah, we're not alone. There's other things that are going on and this can be comforting and it can be humbling, both good things. Listen, this morning you need to know you are not the only one struggling. You are not the only one who is anxious. You are not the only one who is worried. You are not the only one who is stressed. You are not the only crazy one, okay? Look around. We are all got our junk and our mess and our weirdness and the things that we are self-conscious about, the things that we think that we're failing at. You are not alone. We are all got our issues, to put it that way. But God would also, I think, want to reveal to you this today that there are other people who have your back, God doesn't want you going through things alone. And I think as a church, that's one of our functions is to go through stuff together, to pray together, to worship together and to be partners in God's ministries in this little corner of the world together, but also just to to be there with each other going, this is my mess, how's your mess going? Oh yeah, this is my mess. To do these things together. And finally, last point here, that God pointed Elijah toward the next generation. And this is my favourite part of this whole story, is that 
God did not accept Elijah's resignation. I'm calling it his resignation, going out to the desert and going, okay, just kill me, God. That's his resignation from ministry. But God didn't accept the resignation. And one of the reasons he doesn't accept his resignation is because Elijah's purpose was not just about Elijah's lifetime. At the end of the story, along comes this other prophet, Elisha, not yet a prophet, but someone wanted to be a prophet, wanted to learn the ropes. And he was ultimately going to be Elijah's successor, the next prophet to Israel. And I think in our lives that when we are down, one of the things that God wants to do for us and through us is point us not just towards the things going around in our circle and in our time, but he wants to point us towards what is next. He wants to point us to invest in what is next. There's an uh, old anonymous, it's not from the Bible, Greek proverb that you might have heard me to say some sort of version of it before. It says, society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they shall never sit in. And that, I think, is one of the things that we are called to do in our life is to plant trees, is to work, to create things that one day will grow up and provide shade and we won't even be there to see that shade, is to invest in what's next. Many years ago, when I'd first become a youth pastor, I heard a youth leader boast to me and to a group of people that when he left his previous church, that the youth ministry shrunk in half. This was something he was proud of. That Look how good I was doing. They didn't even know how much they needed me. When I left, that place was shrunk in half. And to be honest, I could not imagine a worse sentiment to have. And I'll tell you, my ideal scenario for Fuse here uh, at the Heights Church uh, is in the very distant future that I don't leave per se, but this next generation rises up so much that I just slowly just drift out the door and the whole thing continues to function and, and in a way I'm not even needed. And not only am I not needed, but the place is twice as good as it was previously. That this next generation of leaders and youth that are coming up are going to do things that I couldn't even imagine. That my presence is actually potentially even holding back. My passion, I think the passion that God wants to put on all of our lives is not just to think about, oh, how good can I make things look while I'm here, but no, to be invested in what the next generation is going to be able to do. This is true in our ministry. This is true in our families. This is true in our workplace. I think God wants us to have a mindset of what is next. And in the biblical narrative, this person comes along, Elisha, and Elisha wants to learn the ropes. And he, as Elijah eventually does get his wish and, and is able to resign from his ministry, to put it that way, we're told that Elisha receives a double portion of Elijah's power and that he was accepted as a prophet. And what I love is if you count up the miracles that are recorded in the, in, in the book of 1 Kings that Elijah did, and then you count up the miracles that Elisha did, Twice as many miracles are recorded as having been done by Elisha's hand. When you are down, God wants to lift your eyes up to the ones who are coming after you. Sometimes in our life, we get up from our down and we keep putting one foot in front of the other. We do it for them. We do it for those coming next. 
And so as we consider the different ways that God responded to Elijah when he was down, I wonder if you maybe are in a season of life where you're down, but if you're not, it's probably going to come at some point, that you might be able to think about, yeah, how would God want to deal with me? Maybe some of these things are things that you will remember and listen to what God is wanting to do in your life. Fed up with his situation, Elijah went out to the wilderness to die and God met him there. And I pray that God's response to Elijah might give us some clues to what God might be wanting to say to you today in whatever season of life you might be in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing story. We thank you for this great example of what you do, God. And we thank you that you are still moving, you are still working, and even in our lives right now, God, that you are working. And Lord, for those who are in a situation right now where they do feel run down or beat down, where they do feel like they are in the middle of some version of a breakdown or perhaps can just feel something coming. For those that are exhausted and drained and over it, that this morning, God, you would lift them up, that you would meet them where they are, that you would speak to them, that you would encourage them and that just like Elijah, that you perhaps would have something to say to them today. We thank you, God, that in you is rest and in you is hope. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.